Every time I have an opportunity to uh, share from the Word of God here at Grace Chapel, I'm reminded of how many people it takes to make this whole service work. And so can you just take a moment, you know, Jen referred to, we want to honor Christ and, and all that, but we also want to honor his servants. There are so many people that make this work uh, every Sunday, and you don't even see them all. You know, you get here early enough and you run into several of them. But can you just give a big, nice round of applause for everyone that all over this place, uh, at the table back here, the worship team, the, the children's ministry, uh, just so many. And uh, the communion table is set and ready for us to uh, have a tangible reminder of what Christ has done. So um, keep an eye on people. Maybe you didn't see them in the service and you see them out there, just tell them thank you because of all the things that they do to make this work. And, of course, the worship team as well. Uh, When I was a kid growing up, I spent most of my summers in Kentucky. Uh, Most of them were spent in a place called Revelo, Kentucky. If you look at Revelo, it's Oliver spelled backwards. And the guy that founded the town, his name was Oliver, and he just named it Revelo by turning his name around. It doesn't work exactly, but it's pretty close. And uh, during these summers, I would spend most of the time with my cousin, who was a few years older than me, and at his mom's house, which was out in the country, and uh, there were several kids the neighboring places that would come, and we would all kind of hang out together and play and do different things. You know, in, in school, I teach in, in a high school, and in a high school, when I tell the kids, you know, I, I never had PlayStation when I was growing up, they don't look admiringly at that. They feel sorry for me, you know, they, but, but we didn't. We didn't have anything like that, so we were always outside. And as summer often is the case, relatives would come and visit other people that were in our little group of people. One time a guy showed up and his name was R.L. That's all I remember. I don't remember what the R or the L stood for, uh, but he came from Dayton, Ohio, to this little town in Kentucky to visit his relatives. And when he showed up, he, he had a pair of jeans and tennis shoes and a sweater vest, and it had pockets. And it was, just a, it was literally a sweater vest, nothing underneath it, no T-shirt. No, and, and this is the dead of summer, and he would wear this every single day. And you can imagine after a couple of days, it smelled like he had worn it every single day. And I remember he kept his cigarettes in his pocket of his vest. Now, he was a couple of years older than me, so I don't know how he got his cigarettes, but he had them. And he always talked about how much fighting and how good he was in Dayton. A great fighter. I can fight. I can beat up. We're always in scrapes and scraps, and I'm always the one that comes out on top. So we listened to that for a couple of days. Now, granted, I'm younger, and I'm just listening, kind of in awe, until the day came where my cousin, who was a few years older than me, he says, you know what? I'm really tired of hearing you talk about fighting. He says, why don't we fight? And they did. Now, it's not the what you can imagine with fists and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of rolling and rubbing each other's face in the dirt. But I will just tell you this. At the end of that little skirmish together that lasted much longer than I would have anticipated, uh, R.L. never wore that sweater vest again because it was in pieces. And my cousin just tore him to bits. And so all the talk about how he could fight proved to not resonate with us anymore. In fact, uh, he came back in a t-shirt and jeans and never talked about fighting again because obviously he couldn't because my cousin took him very easily and the reason i share that story is because sometimes that's what happens with our faith 
We talk and we talk and we talk about our faith. But we never show our faith. We never demonstrate it. And that's what the book of James is all about. In James chapter 1, he talks about showing your faith in times of suffering. Count it all joy when you fall into various temptations. In James chapter 2, he says, show your faith through your service, by your actions, by the works that you do. So the book of James is all about showing, demonstrating. And uh, our faith is important, but James says it has to be shown out. Now James does an interesting thing. In James chapter 1, he just says his name. He doesn't say, I'm the half-brother of Jesus, in order to give himself some credibility. Instead, he says, I'm James the servant, which a better translation of that is slave. He's the slave of Jesus Christ, uh, asserting the reality that there is a supreme ruler, and James is the servant of that one. And he doesn't do this regrettably. It's not like he's using slave in a degrading sense. Instead, he's doing it joyously and voluntarily, accepting his role as one who is serving Jesus Christ. And so it is that person who is delivering the message to us in James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, he comes to us and he says, I want you to know what will prove that you have genuine living faith. And so beginning at verse 20, he gives us four proofs of a genuine, living, saving faith. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 20, four proofs of a genuine, living, saving faith. The first proof is that a genuine, living, saving faith is revealed by works. It's revealed by works. Now notice what he does in verse 20. He says, you foolish man. Yes, that's a derogatory term. Yes, that means you're deficient or you're empty. So he's, he's not very happy with the people, uh, these believers. He's kind of saying to them, okay, uh, you uh, want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? So I'll show you. So in verse 21, he says uh, that faith that is genuine, that is alive, is revealed by works. He uses the example of Abraham. He says, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Abraham is used for the illustration. Now think about this. These are believers who have come out of the Jewish faith, so there is no really higher pinnacle than to go to Abraham, unless maybe they talked about Moses. But Moses is the lawgiver. Abraham is the life giver. He shows things. And so Abraham is the one that they use as the example here. And he says, considered righteous was Abraham. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Considered righteous when he offered. Now the idea there, if you you look at it, it says considered righteous. You kind of can pick up that it's written in the passive tense. And whenever something's written passively, you've got to find out who's doing the action. Well, who's considering him righteous? God is. Abraham is considered righteous by God because he demonstrated obedience. Because when uh, the example that he uses is the example of offering his son Isaac uh, on the altar. If you like to cross-reference in your Bibles, it's Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is directed by God to take his son Isaac and to walk with him and put him on an altar, sacrifice him to God. 
Now, if you know the backstory of Abraham, Abraham wanted a son, and God had promised him a son because he was going to make him a great nation. And so think about it. God is saying now, this fulfillment of the promise that I gave to you, your son Isaac, I now want you to take him, and I want you to put him on the altar, and I want you to kill him for my sake. And Abraham did that. Now, James writes it as though Abraham did it. Because in uh, Abraham's mind, it was a done deal. He was not wavering. He was not thinking, please God, please God, please God, please God, please God. Instead, he was going to offer Isaac. But if you remember the story, uh, uh, Abraham has Isaac on the altar. He raises his knife. Uh, the angel of the Lord takes Abraham and says, you, you're, you've passed. You're the guy. Your faith is real. And then he says, look over there in the thicket, there's a, a ram. And that's where we get the, uh, the idea of Jehovah Jireh or God will provide. And God provided the ram for Abraham to sacrifice. But James is writing as though Abraham plunged the knife into his son and sacrificed him. The whole point being is that his faith was revealed by his action, by his works, by his deeds. Now, what was his deed? His deed was obedience. Obedience. God spoke. Abraham did it. God spoke. Abraham did it. You see, real, genuine, living, saving faith is revealed by works, by doing. Uh, It is about obedience to God. You see, faith is invisible. It has to be revealed by the works that we do. So Abraham could have said over and over, I believe God, I trust in you, God, I love you, God, I'm serving you, God. But it wasn't until he obeyed God and sacrificed almost Isaac that his faith was evidenced to everyone. So James is saying, here's the example for you. You want proof of genuine, living, saving faith? Look at what Abraham did. Faith revealed by what he did. You see, we can say a lot of different things. I can say to you that I'm a carpenter. I can say to you that that's my thing. I'm a carpenter. If you don't look at my family, I might be able to pull it off by talking about hammers and nails and saws and studs and all that kind of stuff. But if you look at my family, they are laughing because they know that I only know what those things are because they were given to me as Christmas gifts, not because I can use them. So I can tell you and talk all I want about being a carpenter. But if you put, put me to the test and ask me to prove that I'm a carpenter by doing something, I would fail that test. Abraham did not fail the test. Instead, Abraham revealed his faith by what he did. By what he did. The second proof of saving, living, genuine faith is that it results in rewards. It results in rewards. Look at verses 22 and 23. James says this, You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friends. There are three rewards that he talks about here. If you have genuine Uh, living, saving faith, you get these three rewards. First of all, you have a completed faith. You have a complete faith. He says this in verse uh, 22. He says, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. It was made perfect. It was uh, demonstrated. It was fulfilled. You could see it. 
And it was all that it was needed. His faith was made complete. Abraham's faith uh, is not detailed again. It's just James is saying, you know what he did. And because of what he did, it is a perfect faith. It is an obvious faith. You see, faith is a living thing that produces living actions. And as a result of it, uh, we see the perfection that comes. Uh, The entire statement that James makes here about this is not saying that works animate faith. Okay? Stay with me. What we mean by that is your faith is alive. And we'll get to that in just a moment. You do not do works to make the faith work. The faith is already at work in you, and so you do things. Does that make sense? You are animated by faith, not by your works. Your works merely demonstrate the animated faith that is alive in you. And again, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But uh, your works and your faith make it all complete. And so that is the reward of a genuine living faith. The second reward is uh, in verse 23. He says, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And it was credited to him uh, as righteousness. Uh, the scripture that he's fulfilling and talking about, there's, there's a couple of them. Genesis chapter 15, when uh, Abraham is uh, told about um, he's going to have a child, and he believed God that even though he was old and Sarah was old, he would have a child. Uh, his faith, it was real. And it was credited to him for righteousness. It was credited to him for righteousness. Uh, and the idea of credit is, is the idea of putting it to your account. You know, when we're sinners, we are bankrupt. We are so far in debt, there is only one way to pay it, and that's death. That's the wage of sin. The payment for sin is death. But because of the righteousness that God gives to us through Jesus Christ and our faith in that, the debt is eradicated. It's it's gone. Your account is full. You are fully credited with the things that God gives to you through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, the illustration that came to mind for me was uh, this guy, Dave Ramsey. Do you ever listen to him on the radio? That's, one, that's entertaining radio. I, I, I don't listen often because I don't always know when he's on or where, but I love to listen to Dave Ramsey when I can because the stories of people that have gotten out of debt, they're great stories, right? You know, people call in and they say, Dave Ramsey, thanks to Financial Peace University, I had $4 billion in debt, and three days later we paid it off and we're here to celebrate, right? I mean, they're amazing stories. They're amazing. And then he says, well, how are we celebrating today? And I've got a blowtorch. I'm going to blowtorch my Visa card, or I've got a a, a paper shredder. I'm going to paper shred my uh, credit cards or whatever it is. And what they all do together is they they scream. Remember in Braveheart when Mel Gibson, uh, the final thing that he does, he screams freedom? That's what they all do together on Dave Ramsey's show. They all scream freedom because I'm, I'm out of debt. And that's what we have as a result of our genuine, living, saving faith. We can scream freedom because our account is so full of God's grace and God's goodness and the blood of Christ has eradicated and removed all of the debt and credited us with his righteousness so we have freedom that's the reward that comes from a genuine living saving faith so you have a completed faith you have a credited faith and notice the the last thing that he says here about the reward of your genuine living faith he says and he was called god's friend he was called god's friend several times in the old testament 
Abraham is referred to as the friend of God. Alexander McLaren, who was a 19th century Scottish preacher, says this about being a friend of God. He says, you are frank and familiar, discussing with one another what's going on. Uh, you are friends who delight to meet one another's, one another's wishes. You are friends that give gifts to one another. You are friends who stand up for each other. That's what it is to be a friend of God. Being called a friend of God calls attention to the amazing privileges of intimacy that we share with a holy, awesome, almighty God. He's our friend because of our genuine, living, saving faith. That's a big one. Because there are some times, because of life, that you are so beaten down by circumstances, because things did not go the way that you thought they would go, that you need to cling to the reality that my best friend is God because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. There is this wonderful reward of faith in Christ that says you are now a friend of God and get to enjoy intimacy with him. I mean, think about Abraham. Uh, God is talking and God says, do I hide from Abraham the fact that I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And he says, no, he's my friend. And he goes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham begins the negotiation. But the whole point is, here's God sharing with Abraham the intimate details of what he's going to do. That's what friends do. And being a friend of God has its rewards. And that's part of genuine, living, saving faith. We are called the friends of God. Now, let's pause for just a moment and kind of catch up. Uh, Look what happens in verse 24. Uh, I think it was last Sunday, and maybe the Sunday before too, but Jeff said, I love the book of James. It's a great book. It really is. It's wisdom literature of the New Testament, and it has so much practical advice. Uh, There was a uh, Protestant reformer, his name was Martin Luther, who did not like the book of James. He called it a uh, a right, strawy epistle, like straw with a Y on the end of it. That's not some German insult that he came up with. He was basing it on 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he talks about how you build on a foundation with uh, gold, silver, precious stone, or you build on a foundation with wood, hay, and stubble. He believed that James' writings was that wood, hay, and stubble. And the reason he did that is because of verse 24. Now look at verse 24. It says, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, if you know anything about Martin Luther, Martin Luther built his theology on three major points. Uh, One was scripture alone, the other was grace alone, and the other was faith alone. And the key word in each of those three was the word alone. Martin Luther said it's all about alone because he was fighting against a Catholic church that said, no, it's faith plus. And so here Martin Luther comes to verse 24, and verse 24 says, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. That sent you know, Martin Luther into an apoplectic fit. He couldn't believe it. But please remember, and, and I hope this doesn't take us too far off the trail here, but remember, each book of the Bible has its own purpose in writing. You know, Martin Luther says, okay, let's go to the book of Romans. And Romans is all about justification, about salvation. 
But it's all about justification before God. That's the book of Romans. It's all about justifying salvation before God. How am I justified? I'm justified. I'm saved. I received the gift of salvation before God through his son, Jesus Christ. And, and Romans writes that. Then when we come to the book of James, the book of James is a book that shows justification before men. Okay? So he's not saying that James, I'm sorry, he's not saying that Abraham was justified before God by his works. He's saying that Abraham was justified to men by his works. Do you see the distinction there? The distinction is uh, we don't do works for God to say, oh yeah, you're justified. Instead, we lean and we cry out to Christ and say, save us through your blood. And we're justified before God. But men, we can't just say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I believe. Instead, we have to demonstrate and show our faith by our works. So that's the difference there. So there's really not an issue. Well, for Martin Luther there was. But for us, there is no issue. There are two different perspectives here. Faith leads to action. Now, Romans will do that as well. But the main point of Romans is about justification before God. The main point of James is justification before men. Ju- justification before men. So that's that. Oh, sorry. We had to do verse 24. All right, let's go to verse 25. Uh, the third uh, positive proof of saving faith revealed by works results in rewards. And the third thing is it reaches out to everyone. Look what happens in verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Uh, Saving faith reaches out to everyone. In verse 25, he says, in the same way. The same way as what? As Abraham was justified, Rahab was justified. Now, again, think about this. You're addressing a Jewish audience. The Jewish audience is like, Abraham, yeah. Rahab, what? Rahab, the prostitute? Rahab, the one that was in Jericho, standing against God? Whoa. Well, the point he's trying to make here is that the reach of saving faith goes from the greatest example we can think of to the lowest example we can think of. Rahab, the prostitute. She experienced saving Genuine, living, saving faith. She was the one that hid the spies, sent them off in a different direction, told the the captors who came to get them and said, I don't know what you're talking about. They've gone somewhere else. And remember, remember, Rahab is not in God's Hall of Fame, Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, She is not a part of the lineage of the child uh, Jesus because she lied. Okay, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying, hey, lying is a great thing. It proves you're a Christian. That's not what we're saying. Her faith, believing that God would deliver her. That's what saved her. And she is the lowest example that they could come up with, James could, of someone who experiences saving faith. You see, this morning, Jesus Christ's love and the opportunity to experience the gift of eternal life is available to all. Available to all. I, 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 I hope this isn't too much of a tangent, but I am always stunned when someone says, I am, fill in the blank, God hates me. Or someone says, God hates, and then fill in the blank. That's absurd. That's absurd. 
God sent his son to die on the cross for you and for me. There is no one that has done anything so bad that he does not reach out and rescue them. There is no darkness, as Jen was referring to earlier, that is so bleak and so black that his light does not penetrate. The reach of his faith, uh, the reach of his salvation, it goes from this example of one who was esteemed to one who was not esteemed. This morning, there is nothing that is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. The salvation that he has for us. I've shared this hymn before because it's one of my favorites. And I'm not going to get through it. I'll probably start crying. But uh, Annie Johnson Flint had a debilitating arthritic problem. And she wrote this song. She wrote, He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added affliction, he added his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. And then I love uh, the fourth chapter, uh, the fourth verse. It says, His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power. His power, no boundary, known unto men. For out of his infinite grace, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Don't let anyone say God hates or God is not interested and tag a label on it. Because that just doesn't happen with genuine living, saving faith. And finally, finally, verse 26, genuine living, saving faith is real. It's alive. Look at what he says in verse 26. It's kind of a summary of everything. It says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Uh, The summary points to what James is trying to drive home. Your faith is alive. Uh, It's alive because of what you're doing. I mean, think of think of this. When is the last time you needed helpers, you needed workers, and you thought, let's call the funeral home. They've got a lot of people there. We'll call them and have them come and help us. Never. Why? They're dead. They can't do anything. And what, Jesus, what, what James is trying to say here is, no one ever calls upon the dead to do something because they don't do anything. Instead, it's the live. Those that are alive, they do things. When you are alive, you walk, you talk, you eat, you sleep. You do all of those things, right? You are alive. He says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. We know something is alive because of what it does. We know that your faith is alive because of what you do. Remember, you manifest and show before men. Uh, So faith without deeds is dead. Uh, We know that we are Christians by what we do. I remember, I'm I'm old enough to remember when it used to be what we didn't do. Do you remember that, any of you? You know, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't chew, and I don't dance with girls that do. So I must be a Christian, right? (laughs) It's not like that. It's by what we do, what we show, how we demonstrate. 
Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, it tells us this. He says that uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what you do when you're alive in Christ. You do those things. You show those things. I don't know who said it, but I, I think this is a great quote. A lifeless faith entombed in an intellectually approved creed is no more value than a lifeless corpse. Living, genuine, saving faith is proved by works, results in rewards, reaches out to all, and is real. Now we have the opportunity to uh, allow this faith and the realities of what Jesus did to be reminded in our, in our own minds by partaking of the communion table. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray and then we'll have a few words of instruction and then we will move to the Lord's table for communion.